You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Peter 1, and apostles of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exile of the the desperation of Pontus Galatia, in Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of Bible of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power and being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precocious than gold, than more precious than gold that perishes, through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation revelation of Jesus Christ. Through you, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what people of time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the holy spirit sent from heavens things into which angels long to look thank you Um, sometimes I struggle to read those long words to uh, the uh, Cappadocia and Bithynia and things like that. I I think the trick when reading those is to say them with confidence. So, because no one, not no one, most people, they don't know really how they're pronounced, okay, unless you you actually speak Greek or something. Um, uh, at this time, I want to spend uh, just a little bit before we start praying for Pastor Dan um, and his family. If you're not aware, Pastor Dan, he is, he's been going to Philadelphia a lot lately because his dad has been sick, and his dad, there's a chance he might pass away this month. And so, um, yeah, let's just spend some time praying for Pastor Dan, and then we'll continue our sermon. Father, we praise you for being a God who loves us and delights in us. Uh, but we do want to pray for Pastor Dan and his family um, and what they're going through right now. 
God, we don't understand uh, fully uh, why you do the things that you do, but we do recognize that because of sin, um, pain is a reality and death is a reality. And, um, and sometimes we have to just go through those experiences. Um, we pray that you would comfort Dan and his family uh, right now, that you would um, give them a peace that transcends all understanding, um, give them a joy that clashes but complements grief, and I pray that you would, um, yeah, continue to use Dad's, uh, Dan's dad's life as a testimony to those who don't know you yet um, for the little time he might have left. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As, we've been, as I've been personally reflecting on uh, Pastor Dan's dad this week, uh, I've been reminded of another friend. I have a high school friend, and his name is Brett. He's also a pastor, actually, in California. And his dad passed away from cancer uh, about a month and a half ago. It was, I think, an 11-year battle. And um, I didn't know his dad super well. I had met him a few times. I remember thinking he was the, one of the cool dads. You know, it was, it was fascinating because I grew up, you know, I'm an Asian-American. And people my age, you know, they, they're pretty Americanized generally. But a lot of people, the generation above us, they're not as Americanized. But I remember his dad, it always struck me because he... He spoke perfect English, and he was a San Jose Sharks fan, and he was, he was about as American as you can get. Oh, he's Asian too, by the way, in case that wasn't clear. And um, yeah, and he was just, uh, yeah, I looked up to him a lot. And uh, about a week ago on Facebook, Brett, he posted several videos of his dad. Um, and what struck me the most in all these videos, there's all sorts of random videos, was just how joyful he was. Just how just the incredible amount of joy that he had. And there were videos of him, you know, spinning in a wheelchair, and there were videos of him singing in a church choir, and there were videos of him trying to talk like Donald Duck, and there were videos of him doing leg leg exercise. In all of these videos, he just had this inexpressible joy. And um, despite the cancer and the chemotherapy, he just always seemed to be cheering the people around him up. In our passage today, Peter describes a joy just like this, a joy that persists, even in the midst of trials and tests. And he sandwiches this in this passage about salvation. And so, what is the relationship between joy and salvation? What is the relationship between joy and salvation? Well, according to Peter, our joy is dependent on our understanding of salvation. Our joy is dependent on our understanding of how great, how amazing, how glorious our salvation is. And the more we recognize how glorious our salvation is, the more we can rejoice. And so first, um, what I'm going to do today is I, I want to spend some time exploring what joy and trial looks like. And uh, first, P- um, Peter talks about that in verses 6 through 9. And then I want to spend the bulk of this time talking about how the salvation uh, is a reason for this joy. Describing what is the salvation like and how can the salvation be a reason for this joy. And that's sort of found in the rest of the passage, verses 1 through 5 and then 10 through 12. So it's going to be... I'm going to go a little bit out of order, but bear with me. Okay, let's read verse 6 through 9 once more. In this you, and here's the word, rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy 
There's that word joy again. That is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so what I think Peter is doing here, uh, and when he's writing this passage, he's talking about a salvation, and then he interrupts himself and talks about joy. And he goes back to talking about, his, talking about salvation. But when he's talking about joy, I think it's important to note, Peter doesn't have an idealistic view of life. He's not a roses and butterflies sort of guy. He's very realistic. And in fact, according to church tradition, just a few years after he wrote this, he was crucified upside down under Nero and and Emperor of Rome. And so he understands suffering. And that is why he he says, people are grieved by various trials. He says, people are grieved by various trials. And that is why he also recognizes people go through these experiences that he describes. It's like fire. It's like being tested. But in the midst of those experiences, in the midst of trials and tests, there is this inexpressible, glorious joy. And I just want to clarify, joy is not happiness. Okay, sometimes people equate the two terms. But it's not happiness because Peter's not saying you no longer have grief. Peter says you rejoice in your grief. And so joy does not replace grief. Joy comes alongside your grief. And so this is important because it's not just, joy is not just being naive or being ignorant or just being shallow. Joy is this deep-centered sense of contentment and peace that enables perseverance through all circumstances, whether good or bad. So that when you're happy, you can be joyful, and when you're sad, you can be joyful. And how is that possible? Well, according to Peter, our joy comes from this recognition of our glorious salvation. So that's why he couches this passage in this, in this passage about salvation. And his, I, I believe one of his main theses statements, I guess you could say, is that the more we see our salvation for what it is, the more we rejoice. The more we see our salvation for what it is, the more we rejoice, whether in the good or in the bad. So throughout this passage, uh, I believe Jesus, he's listing several reasons why our salvation is glorious. And so I just sort of summarize it into five. There's a lot, but five is way more than a normal sermon would have. So I'm going to just give you five reasons why our salvation is glorious according to this passage. So let's dive in. Why is our salvation glorious? Number one, our, our salvation is the endeavor of God. Our salvation is the endeavor of God. Let's read verses one through two. One through two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's who's writing the letter, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Do you see how I read that quickly? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Notice, so Peter, he's addressing this letter to elect exiles, in these Roman provinces, these are now in modern-day Turkey, fun fact. But this term, elect exiles, it almost sounds like an oxymoron. It almost sounds self-contradictory because exiles are usually not elected to anything. Exiles are usually not elected to anything. Exiles or sojourners or refugees, these sorts of people are people who are usually rejected by Almost everything. They're rejected. They don't have a homeland often. They're often on the run. They're often being persecuted. And so they're not usually elected. They're not chosen. But they are chosen. And that's why Peter calls them elect exiles. And who are they chosen by? By the Trinitarian God himself. 
And that's why in verse 2, you see how all the parties of the Trinity are involved. The Trinity is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's why Peter's saying, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. And so, what he's saying is, from the dawn of history, you have the Father, you have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They came together, they created and executed this plan, this endeavor, to choose these exiles, to rescue these exiles, to elect these exiles. And so this is really important because this, this is not just a side project of God. This is not just an afterthought of God. This is the whole Trinitarian being from the beginning deciding, I'm going to choose these people who the rest of the world has not chosen, who the rest of the world has rejected. You know, the closest example I can think of this, I think this is sometimes hard for understand because it seems a little bit abstract, but the closest example I can think of this is Harry Potter. Okay, I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Potter, but Harry Potter, he's this dude, and uh, he, he's living with the Dursleys, and he, he's like the reject of the family. He's living on the bottom of the stairs, and he's a nobody, okay? And people, and he just, he doesn't have much of a social life. And then, one day, out of the blue, Hagrid comes along, this big giant, and he knocks on the door, and Hagrid chooses Harry, Okay, and Harry, he's probably thinking, who am I? Why are you choosing me? I'm this nobody. But Hagrid says, no, you're a wizard, and you're not just a wizard. You are this prophesied wizard who's going to take down you-know-who, okay? (laughs) Right? And so just imagine what Harry might be thinking, okay? All his life, he was functionally an exile sort of, he lived sort of an exile sort of life. He was a nobody. No one chose him for anything. He was probably picked last on the school basketball team, whatever. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes along and he doesn't choose any of his family members, but he chooses him. And I want to say, he must have felt the the shock, the surprise. He just didn't know what to do with that information. And I want to say, our salvation should be like that. Our salvation, so if you, if you haven't felt this surprise or this shock or this awe or this wonder in a while, maybe you should. I encourage you to experience it again because our salvation means that though we are exiles to the rest of the world, those we've been, those we, though we've been rejected by the rest of the world, we are centerpieces of God's salvation plan. We are centerpieces of God's salvation plan, and that is glorious. And so don't think that just because you think you can slip through the cracks of the rest of the world— that you can slip through the cracks of God's hands because God loves you. And so if you ever think, does God care about me or does God love me or is God interested in what I'm up to, our glorious salvation is this resounding yes. It's a resounding yes to that question. The God has started this endeavor of salvation from the dawn of time. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they planned this out and they chose to initiate, to rescue you, and you're an elect exile. So that's number one. Our salvation is glorious because it is the endeavor of God. Our salvation, number two, is glorious because our salvation is a reversal of death. This is verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We live in a world that is marked with failure and suffering and disappointment. Um... What Pastor Dan is going through right now is an example of that. What my friend Brett uh, went through over the past 11 years is another example of that. And when someone walks around in this world long enough, this failure, this suffering, this disappointment becomes so normal that it just sort of characterizes everything. Um, So that it's even hard to imagine how life can be any different. 
Well, our salvation is glorious because it is the proof that there is something different. Our salvation is the proof that there is something different. According to verse 3, God has caused us to be born again. And this is a Christianese term that sometimes if we say it so much, we forget what it means. This, in other words, being born again is this chance to start over, to a chance to experience life anew, a chance uh, to, to experience this new thing where everything that was normal, everything that was part of your old life is now becoming abnormal. And everything that you thought was abnormal now potentially becomes normal. And so there's a chance to start this new life. It's and, and everything is flipped upside down. And, and in what way? How is this normal to abnormal, abnormal, normal? How, this, how is this born again thing going on? Let's keep reading. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay. And so he's talking about death here. And this is very important because the pinnacle of sin, the pinnacle of all of this failure, suffering, and disappointment that we experience in life, the pinnacle of that, the best representation of that is death. So that when we experience death, sometimes we can go through life and we can sort of live in denial, thinking that failure doesn't exist or suffering doesn't exist or pain doesn't exist. But when we experience death, it's, it's just standing right there looking at us in the face and we can't deny it anymore. Because death is this all-encompassing reminder that pain triumphs over pleasure. It's this reminder that loss triumphs over gain. My wife and I, we experienced a little bit of this about three years ago. We had a miscarriage, uh, for those who don't know. And um, it left us with all sorts of emotions that we didn't really know how to process. We felt angry. We felt shock. We felt shame. We felt loneliness. We felt confusion. And there was just no explanation for it. Um, you know, you just, you just sit there and you just you, you can't do anything. You can't fix it. You, couldn't, you can't solve it. But when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus started this process in which this solvingness or this fixingness started. Jesus broke this curse of sin and death, and he hinted at this idea that death doesn't have the final word. And so as C.S. Lewis says, death itself would start working backwards. Because all of history, death was marching on and it had this one direction March, and then when Jesus died and he rose from the dead, he started something new so that life came out of death. Since the start of sin, our whole world has been characterized by failure and suffering and disappointment and death, and it was all there was. No one could escape it. But then Jesus came, he died and rose again, and he proved that he could escape it. He began this revolution in which death itself is slowly undone, and so that the world starts to become what it was meant to be. It, was, it started to be unmarked by sin and unmarked by failure and unmarked by suffering and unmarked by disappointment, unmarked by death. And, and our salvation, our salvation is, in a sense, a participation in this resurrection. It's a participation in Jesus' resurrection. So that it's not like Jesus resurrected and then, and then that's it. But we, all of us, we have a chance to participate in that. And that is why Peter says we are born again. Being a born again, in a sense, is, is we are, in essence, killing our old selves and then rising from the dead with new life. That's what it means to be born again. So that our new life is characterized by Jesus' resurrected life. And so, yes, we still go through death in this life. Death is not totally eliminated but our glorious salvation is a sign to ourselves and to the world that death has lost its sting. 
that the curse of sin and death has been removed. And now we are in this process of reversing the curse of sin and death. We're reversing death. We're in this process of being in this revolution that Jesus started when he rose from the dead. And we are participating with him. So our salvation is the reversal of death. Number three, why is our salvation glorious? Our salvation is the treasure of heaven. Our salvation is the treasure of heaven. So not only are we born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection, but we are also born again, this is verse 4 to 5, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is absolutely amazing. I love all these adjectives that Peter throws out, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, because many of us as human beings, we spend practically all of our lives guarding things that are perishable, defiled, and fading. We spend practically all of our lives guarding those things, perishable things, defiled things, fading things. We spend our whole lives collecting all of these things, okay, you can... Money, clothes, houses, academic degrees, body muscles, okay? We collect all of these things, and all these things are perishable, defiled, and unfading. And we spend our whole lives guarding them and protecting them and dedicating all we have to them. And there's two things wrong with that picture, okay? First of all, as we mentioned, they are perishable, defiled, and fading. And so it doesn't matter who's guarding them. They're going to be gone anyways. And, and so it's silly to think you would guard such a thing. And secondly... Even if these things were actually valuable, how silly it is for us to think that we would, be do, we would do a good job of guarding them, right? It would be silly to think that we would be good guards because, you know, we as human beings, we, could, we are flaky, we're irresponsible, we easily lose things, we easily forget things. That's why I put my money in a bank, you know, because I believe that a bank is much better at guarding money than I am, right? And so, but that's not how it is with our salvation, Firstly, our salvation is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's infinitely more valuable than anything else in this world, and it, it, it has the permanence of value, too. It, it, it lasts forever. And secondly, it's not being guarded by our power or by the power of our bank, or I don't know if you saw your money in the, your grandma's house, the power of your grandma. It, it's being guarded by God's power. It's being guarded by God's power. And so sometimes, I think this is very important to catch because sometimes when we sin or when we doubt, we often think, we often wonder, am I really saved? And I think what we're asking, what we're really thinking is, we are afraid that we are losing our salvation. And when we use that language, we're afraid that we're losing our salvation, we're catching it in this assumption that our salvation is ours to guard. Our salvation is ours to guard. And so how can, you lose, how can you lose your salvation if you don't even, you're not even the one guarding your salvation, right? Your salvation is being guarded by God himself. Your salvation is the one, I mean, your salvation is being guarded by God himself. So even if you feel like you're losing your salvation, even if you feel like you're letting go of God, God is not letting go of you. Our salvation is not just some earthly treasure that we store away, that we protect with our own efforts. Our salvation is the treasure of heaven. And God has it in store for us in heaven, and he is preparing a place for us. He is guarding it. So that's why our salvation is glorious. It is the glorious treasure of heaven guarded by God himself. Number four, why is our salvation glorious? Our salvation is the climax of history. So we read through 6 through 9. We're going to go to verse 10. Concerning the salvation... 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the, things that, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so Peter, what he's describing, he says, there have been these prophets throughout history. We have a lot of books written by these prophets in the Old Testament. And these prophets, they dedicated their lives to searching and inquiring carefully about Christ. To searching and inquire carefully about Christ, and in particular, his suffering and his glory. And why did they do that? What did they have to gain from that? This is interesting. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were serving not themselves, but you. So they weren't searching this out. They weren't doing this inquiring and searching for themselves. They were doing it for you. In other words, you can think about it this way. They dedicated their lives. They were sowing these seeds, sowing these seeds, dedicating these lives, sowing these seeds, and they never saw the fruit. They never saw the harvest. And we today, we are the harvest. We are the harvest, you and me. We are the, the, the fulfillment of what they have prophesied. And so all these prophets of old, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they had all these questions. And so they were searching and inquiring. Questions like, how is God going to forgive the sins of humanity? Questions like, how is God going to make things right? Or questions like, There's so many wars. And how can humans be reconciled to one another? Or how can human beings be made whole again? They had all these questions, trying to figure these things out. And then, as as history dragged on, the more unsettling these questions were, and and then Jesus came along. And Jesus, Jesus answered those questions. And so you can think of it as history, all of history climaxed when Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he suffered, he died, and he rose again to the subsequent glories. And by doing so, God answered all of those questions. And he, how, how did he do that? Through the way of salvation. Salvation is God's answer to all of those questions. And so have you ever, um, have you ever watched those movies where like the, the whole time you're watching the movies, you have no idea what's going on. And at the end, you, you, like everything makes sense. And, you, and you, you see the end and you go, oh, that's why so-and-so did this, or that's why so-and-so said this, and everything makes sense. You know, it's like Shawshank Redemption or Memento or whatever. Okay, but there are all these movies, and that's what happened in the real world. That there were all sorts of these blunders, these questions that perplexed us for generations. We didn't understand, and these prophets were looking into them, and then Jesus came, he saved us, and everything made sense. When God granted us salvation through Jesus, everything in history made sense so that when we are saved, our glorious salvation is, in a sense, the explanation of everything, the sense maker of everything, so that all these questions can be answered by our stories, but answered by the fact that we have been saved. And so your life is not just an insignificant blip in the grand scheme of things, in the grand timeline, grand timeline of history. Why? Because your life contains this unprecedented event namely salvation, that makes sense of all other events. Your life contains this thing that all these people throughout history have been looking forward to, that have been waiting for, that have been asking questions about. Your salvation is the climax of history. So that's why our salvation is glorious. Number five, why is our salvation glorious? And this comes from verse 12. And, 
and I found this so fascinating that I want to make this an extra bullet point. Our salvation is the fascination of angels. Our salvation is the fascination of angels. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And he could have ended in the sentence right there, but then he says, things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. So do you catch this line by angels? Angels long to look into this thing called salvation. I don't know if you ever thought about angels like that before. Um, in our society, I, I feel like we've, we've tamed angels so much that we don't really think about, we, don't really, we just think about them as people who have wings and they, they, they play harps and they shoot love arrows, okay? And, and that's all they do. And I would say that's not what they do, okay? First off, um, if an angel is shooting an arrow at you, okay, that's not a love arrow. That, that's very dangerous, okay? Uh, second of all, there's Hebrew, I want to encourage you to read Hebrews 1 to 2. I'm not going to read the whole, ch- the whole section, but Hebrews 1 and 2 makes it clear that angels and humans are very different from one another in namely one important way, that Jesus did not come to save angels. Jesus came to save human beings. It's very fascinating. Okay, read it if you have a time. But I'm just going to pull out two verses. Hebrews 1, verse 14, he's talking about angels, and he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So he's saying, these angels, they're here not to serve themselves. They're here to serve people, people who are being saved. Angels serve human beings. And then in Hebrews 2, 16, he says, for surely it is not angels that he, this is Jesus, for surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Again, Jesus saves not angels, but human beings. This is very fascinating stuff. If you've never heard this theology before, okay, I'm not a heretic, just look it up for yourself. There is no biblical evidence that angels experience repentance and salvation. There's no biblical evidence that angels experience repentance and salvation. In the Bible, there are many angels who do God's will and many angels who don't do God's will. But there's never a case in which an angel that has fallen repents and starts to do God's will. That is salvation. And that process of salvation has not been granted to angels Angels never experienced that before. That process of salvation has been granted to human beings. And that is why God chose for Jesus not to become an angel. He chose for Jesus to become a human being. And that is why God chose for Jesus not to die for angels, but to die for human beings. And so when angels look at us, they look at us, we're people once dead and now alive, we're people once lost and now found, people once rebels but now made friends of God, that transformation is, is, is awesome. It's wonderful. It's bewildering to them. And they're fascinated by it. And if they are fascinated by it, then I want to say we should be fascinated by it too. Here's the thing. Sometimes as Christians, um, especially if, we, if we've been walking in this faith for a while, we lose our fascination. We lose our wonder. We lose this glory, and we forget how amazing and glorious our salvation is. You know, our Christian faith, it might just be slowly reduced into these habits and these routines, these mundane activities. We lose our joy, and we've forgotten why we became Christians in the first place. I don't know if that's relatable to any of you. you just, you've just been going through the motions, and you forgot why you signed up in the first place. We lose sight of our first love. You know, it can be like a person who gets married and they go through the honeymoon phase where they're super excited, and they start to reach this 
phase of their marriage when they just they start to question everything and they start to wonder like why do I get is this even worth it and and, and they start their eyes start to wa- wa- uh, wander and you know their mind starts to wander and they just they question everything um, because they're just going through the motions and they lose their joy they lose sight of their first love what do we do during those moments and I want to suggest what we need to do is we remember the glory of salvation. We remember that, first off, our salvation is the endeavor of God. He's chosen you from the dawn of time, and he's all in. He's for you. Remember, number two, our salvation is the reversal of death. By being born again, death has lost his sting. We participate in Jesus' resurrection. That's glorious. Number three, we remember our salvation is the treasure of heaven. Guard, uh, God is guarding this, this, this salvation in heaven and it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. And number four, we remember our salvation is the climax of history. All these prophets from of old, they've been waiting for this time when we can be saved and we're not just an insignificant speck with a direct fulfillment of these prophecies. Number five, remember our salvation is the fascination of angels. Angels are looking down at you with curiosity and wonder just bewildered by the fact that you were lost and now you're found. You're dead and you're alive and you were a rebel and now you're a friend of God. And we remember the glorious salvation of God and when we do that, we rejoice. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18, it's one of my favorite passages and it goes, though the fig tree should not blossom, the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the, fruit, and the fields yield no fruit, The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This is how the the Christian life is characterized. Even if nothing goes your way, even if your financial situation is what you want it to be, even if your family situation isn't what you want it to be, if your work situation is what you want it to be, if your relationship situation, whatever, if nothing goes your way, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Do you have that? Do you have that joy? Maybe some of you don't feel joy. uh, And I want to suggest for some of you, it might be because you haven't experienced salvation. Maybe this is your first time in church, or maybe this is your thousandth time in church. But maybe right now at this time, you're wondering, maybe I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I experienced the salvation because I don't feel the depth of the joy the way the Bible describes it. And maybe right now God's Spirit is prodding you to look to Him, to experience that joy. And if that's you, I urge you confess your sin, trust in the fact that Jesus loves you and died for you, and thank God that He saved you and start experiencing that joy. But maybe others of you, you're confident you are saved, but you still don't experience that joy. You still feel stuck or stagnant or you feel mundane. And during those times, we need to be reminded more and more of our glorious salvation. We can lose, we can just forget. We bleed, we leak, right? We know these things, but we go through life and we forget these things. And so we need to ask, as David did in Psalm 51, he says, Restore in me the joy of your salvation. Restore in me the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Actually, please stand with me, and then uh, we'll pray, and then the music team can come up too. Father, uh, I want to pray for people in this room who might not have experienced salvation before. Um, 
and they've been going through this life and they've been beaten down and they've been burdened and they've been feeling tired and they've been feeling restless and they've and they are desperate for joy and God we thank you that uh, Jesus died for us and he died so that we may have joy and joy to the fullest um, we pray that you would save people here who might not know you people who are separated from you and God I also want to pray for those who are saved, but for some reason or another, we don't feel joy. We're just sort of in this funk where we feel stuck or we feel dry or feel mundane or we feel stagnant. And God, I want to just pray the same thing that David prayed. Please restore in us the joy of salvation. God, please remind us of how glorious it is that you have saved us, just how glorious that fact is. God, I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of that. Thank you for Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And thank you that he did that, that we may be saved. And I pray that when we go through suffering, we may follow in Jesus' footsteps that for the joy set before us, we may endure all hardships, all trials, all temptations, all tests. Thank you for our glorious salvation. And may the salvation mark our lives wherever we go. Thank you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to be um, going to a time of communion. And communion is a time when we remember Jesus' death, his body and blood broken and shed for us. This is where our new birth happened. This is where the resurrection started. This is where the revolution began. And so I encourage you to take some time. Think about what it means that you are saved. Think about what salvation means to you. And then when you are ready, uh, feel free to line up on either side of the aisle and take uh, this bread and dip it in the grape juice and take of it and remember Jesus.